Well, our pastor is out in San Diego, say preaching this morning, but he's got a few more hours uh, before he preaches. But in his absence, um, we're so thankful uh, to have Aaron Greenleaf with us here this morning. Um, Aaron's a dear friend and a faithful preacher of the gospel. So, Aaron, you come. Once again, for anyone who wasn't at Sunday school this morning, um, it's my honor and privilege to be with you. Uh, it's been so long since I've been up here. been looking forward to this for some time now. And bring all the well wishes and thoughts and prayers from everybody in Lexington. They'd be very upset if I didn't bring those with me. So you all have a huge family down there, um, even if you don't know it. Another group of believers, and we're, we're very prayerful for you. Um, Eric, you've been so helpful. Um, he comes to preach for us all the time. We're just very grateful um, for the for this congregation and your all's friendship to us. Very important. If you would turn to Second Samuel chapter two. I want to look at a story this morning. To get through the story, it actually it spans several chapters. The majority of it is found in chapters two and three, but it actually goes all the way over to chapter five. I want to look at the story in its completeness this morning. We'll just read excerpts along the way, and I'll kind of tell you what happens. But the title of the message this morning is this. It's Man's Lie and God's Truth. And it's a befitting title because that's what this story does. It contrasts two things. Man's lie. Man is the lie, but he also has a lie. And God's truth. It exposes some things. It exposes the natural man exposes what he knows. He knows something about God. What does the natural man know about God? What he knows, what he desires, and what he does with that knowledge and that desire. It exposes man's religion, salvation by works. That's a man-made religion. It exposes the error of that. also exposes this. It exposes the truth of the gospel, the truth of Christ, God's truth. And keep in mind, truth is not subjective. You can believe two plus two equals five all day long. Well, that's your truth. That doesn't matter because two plus two equals four. There's only one truth, and that's God's truth. And he's pleased to reveal it in this story. It's a very exciting story. To tell you where we're going to pick up, Saul, the former king of Israel, he's dead. He's already died. And David, he's been anointed by God through Samuel to be king over the entire kingdom, over Israel and Judah. And that happened long before Saul ever died. David has been the rightful king for a very long time now. People are just finding out about it now. The kingdom is divided. And so David goes to the Lord. He says, should I go up to Judah? Should I go up and, and take the kingdom? And the Lord says, go up. And so he goes up and he tells Judah, I'm your king. And he said, of course you are. Everybody knows that. You're the king. David, sit on the throne. This is fantastic. Judah receives him. Israel, not so much. So you got Judah on one side, which is basically the tribe of Judah, and then you got Israel, which is basically all the other tribes. And Judah says, no, nah, not so much. They're ruled by a name, man named Abner. And Abner is Saul's former second-in-command. He was the captain of the host. And so I want you to see what Saul does here. Look down in 2 Samuel 2 and look at verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner... Captain of Saul's host, 
took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Manhanam. And look at these words. This is very important. And made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, and over Jezreel, and over Ephraim, and over Benjamin, and over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. Now Saul, or I'm sorry, Abner, under Saul's rule, he had this position as the captain of the host. This was a position of prestige, position of power, position of influence. He had Saul's ear. And this is the theme of Abner throughout this story. Abner desperately does not want David to be king. And it's for one reason. He doesn't want David to be king because Saul doesn't want to lose, or I'm sorry, Abner doesn't want to lose control. Right now, he has control. Now, prior to this, for some years, there's been no king over in Israel. David had been the king over there for about seven years now. But there's been no king over in Israel for a while now. Who do you think was calling the shots over there during that period? Abner was. Abner has control right now. Abner has influence. And truth be told, what Abner wants, Abner wants to be king. But he knows that's not appropriate. Nobody would support that. He doesn't have the proper name. He has no claim to the throne. He can't be king, so he does the very next best thing. You know what he does? He installs a puppet king in Ishbosheth. He takes this young guy. He's got the right name, got Saul's name. And what we'll find about Ishbosheth is this as we go on reading. He is a weak man. He can be manipulated. And he is terrified of Abner. Absolutely terrified of him. So much so, Ishbosheth won't do anything unless Abner gives him the go-ahead. That's exactly what kind of king Abner is looking for, a king he can manipulate, a king he will tell him what to do, and his king is only going to do exactly what he wants him to do. Now, Abner coming out against David, this creates a contention. The whole kingdom sits on the brink of civil war. We can't let this divide continue. Somebody's got to take the throne, either Ishbosheth or David. Who's it going to be? So they decide to have a little showdown, right? They're going to meet. Abner and his forces come down to the pool of Gibeon. And then Joab, commanding David's forces, he goes out to the pool. Let's see what happens. Look at verse 12. And Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Manhattan to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David went out and met together by the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. Now, it seems as if there's an interest in a peaceful resolution at this point. They're interested in having some sort of dialogue, perhaps negotiation over this. Everybody comes to this pool, Abner and his army on one side, Joab and David's army on the other side, and everybody sits down. That's a good thing to do. Let's, let's talk this out. Let's see if we can work this out. Nobody wants a civil war, right? And they have this... Smart idea. They put this pool of water between the two of them. It gives them some standoff distance. So if negotiations break down and tempers get heated, nobody can just get up and hastily shove a sword across the way into the guy across from them and spark a full-blown battle. They're being wise about this. They won't talk about it. But look what Abner does. Look at verse 14. And Abner said to Joab, Let the young men now arise and play before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then there arose and went over by number twelve of Benjamin, which pertained to Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. 
Now, Abner proposes play, but this is not child's play. What he is proposing here is gladiator-like combat. Abner says, Joab, you send your best, 12 of your best. I'm going to send my 12 best, my 12 warriors against your 12 warriors, and we're going to have a little competition. We're going to have a competition to see whose warriors are stronger, which ones are better, which ones are better trained. And through this little skirmish here, we'll get a taste for what would happen if our two armies went into battle. And you put yourself in Joab's position right now, it's a tight spot, right? You don't want to see any of his guys get hurt. But if he doesn't accept the challenge, Abner may view that as a sign of weakness. Just send his army and they clash all at once. Furthermore, if his boys win, Joab's got some great warriors. If his 12 win, that may discourage Abner. He may say, no, this ain't worth it. I'm just going to give up right now. But he's trying to avoid bloodshed. But in a tight spot, arguably, Joab makes the best decision he can. And he says, let him rise. Let him fight. Let's see what happens. Now, look at verse 16. Speaking of these 24 warriors, and they caught everyone his fellow by the head and thrust his sword in his fellow's side. So they fell down together. Wherefore, that place was called Helkath Azram. And that means a slippery place, which is in Gibeon. Now, this purpose, the purpose of this competition was what? We're going to find out who's better. Who's got the better warriors? Who is best equipped for the battle right now? We're going to find out who is better through this competition. What did they find? They found that there was absolutely no difference between any of them. They were all evenly matched. Each one of these men grabbed each other by the hair took his sword, shoved it in the other man's side, and this is the end state of this competition at Gibeon. I'm going to give you the gospel application later. Just hear me now. This is the end state of this competition in Gibeon. Everybody who entered the competition died. Every one of them. Not a one was better than the other. Now, the bloodshed from this small skirmish and the fact that no winner could be decided, this sparks a full-blown battle. Abner's forces collide with Joab's forces, and they enter a full-blown civil war, and you think how terrible this would be. But the scriptures record that Joab and his army, they're victorious that day. They actually put Abner and Abner's army on their heels. They go chasing after them. Let's see what happens. Look at verse 18. And there were three sons of Zariah there, Joab and Abishai and Asahel. And Asahel was as light of foot as a wild roe. And Asahel pursued after Abner. And in going, he turned not to the right hand, nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Art thou Asahel? And he answered, I am. And Abner said to him, Turn thee aside to the right hand or to the left, and lay thee hold on one of the young men, and take thee his armor. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, Turn thee aside from following me. Wherefore should I smite thee to the ground? How then should I hold up my face to Joab, thy brother? Now, here we are introduced to the hero of this entire thing. His name is Asahel, and he means God appointed or God made. That's what his name means. And if you go through reading in the First Chronicles account of David's mighty men, Asahel's listed there. He's one of those men that's listed, and he's referred to as a valiant man. He's strong, he's capable. He's battle-tested. This is a man that was respected by everybody around him. And it says right here that he was as fast as a wild roe. That means he was fast as a gazelle. 
And so Abner's forces are on the run, right? And Asahel, he takes the battlefield, covered in blood, just got done, I'm sure, in a ferocious battle. And he surveys the battlefield, and his eyes fall on one man. What do you think he was thinking? He looked at Abner and he said, you're the problem. There is one reason that the kingdom is not reconciled under my king, David. There is one reason there's been an insurrection. There is one reason I've spent my day hacking my countrymen to bits and we're involved in this civil war. There's one reason he's standing right there. Abner's the problem. Abner has to go down. And he took off like a wild row after Abner. I'm going to put down Abner forever. And he wouldn't be dissuaded. Abner said, turn to the right hand or to the left. Seek your victory. Seek your glory on one of these young men. Go fight him. Take his armor. Kill him. Get your victory there. Just stop pursuing me. Asahel said, no, you're the problem. And the problem has to go down. And Abner, he's very confident. Abner's an old, grizzled, malicious warrior. Very tough. Very sly. Very sneaky. And when I give you his type at the very end, you personally will recognize how old and tough and malicious he actually is. Now let's see what happens. Look at verse 23. Speaking of Asahel, Howbeit he refused to turn aside, wherefore Abner with the hinder end of the spear smote him under the fifth rib, that the spear came out behind him, and he fell down there and died in the same place. And it came to pass that as many as came to the place where Asahel fell down and died, stood still. Asahel's faster than Abner. Asahel's gaining ground on Abner. Abner sees him coming. He's got the spear in his hand. And all he does is jut that spear out behind him just like that. And Asahel runs headlong right into it. And that spear punctured under his fifth rib, and the spear came all the way out the other side. Now, this is gruesome, but consider this for a moment. It would be bad enough to take the sharp end of a spear and have it plunged through your ribcage. That's not what happened. He took the blunted end of the spear. That stick you use, your mop handle, imagine that blunted end on the end there, it going straight through you, all the trauma to the flesh that would cause. That went straight through him, all that pain, all that blood, and it came out the other side, and Asahel died on that battlefield. And this is what happened the very moment Asahel died. Everything on that battlefield stopped. Everybody who came to the place where Asahel fell down and died, they all did the exact same thing. They stood still. Men hacking each other to bits. One guy probably on his knees just waiting for that fatal blow, and all of a sudden, everything stops. Could have heard a pin drop. This valiant warrior, this mighty warrior, this one that everybody else looked to, they all stood in awe that he died. Now this pause in the battle gives Abner an opportunity to flee. He goes and he reinforces himself, and essentially Joab allows him to flee. And you know what he's thinking, we're in a civil war, I don't want to see any more of my countrymen die, we've won the day, let's see what happens tomorrow. And you would think this would be the end of it, right? Abner's beat, it's over with. Sure not, this is just the beginning. Scripture record that there is long war between the house of David and the house of Saul. But it also records this. David waxed stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. You see, David's definitely going to win. There's no doubt about it. He's God's king. Of course he's going to win. 
It's just a matter of time. Now, before we get to the conclusion, the victory, I want you to see an interaction between Ishbosheth, the king that Abner made, and Abner. I think it'll better explain their relationship. Go over to chapter 3, look at verse 6. And it came to pass, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner made himself strong for the house of Saul. And Saul had a concubine, whose name was Ritzpah, the daughter of Ai. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Wherefore hast thou gone in unto my father's concubine? Then was Abner very wroth for the words of Ishbosheth. Said, Am I dog's head, which against Judah do show kindness this day unto the house of Saul thy father, to his brethren, to his friends? And have not delivered thee into the hand of David? Thou chargest me today with a fault concerning this woman? Now, is this the way you speak to your king? This is the one time recorded where Abner actually tries to call, I'm sorry, Ishbosheth tries to call out Abner for something he's done. Apparently, Abner was messing around with one of his father's concubines, and Ishbosheth didn't like that. Ishbosheth, the king, he says, Abner, you're wrong on this. I don't want you to do this. How does Abner respond? Who are you to tell me what to do? Look at everything I've done for you. I've continued your house on the throne. I've protected you from David. I've been good to you, good to all your friends. Look at everything I've done for you. How dare you try to hold me to account? Is this the way a man speaks to his king? That's the way a man speaks to his king if it's the king he has made. And you can write this down. He who can make a king is in fact the king. Abner's the king in this relationship. He's telling Ishbosheth what to do. But Abner's going to show his hand. He's going to admit to something that he has never admitted to until up to this point. Look at verse 9 of chapter 3. This is Abner speaking to Ishbosheth. says, So do God to Abner, and more also, except as the Lord has sworn to David, even so I do to him to translate the kingdom from the house of Saul and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan even to Beersheba. And he could not answer Abner a word again because he feared him. Now this is what Abner's saying. He's saying, Ishbosheth, I'm switching sides. We're losing. Very clear I'm on the losing side of this battle. I'm going to go align myself with David. But he makes an admittance here. He says this, As the Lord do to David, so I do unto him. What did you know, Abner? What has the Lord said to David? Well, it's very simple. He said he was going to translate the kingdom from the house of Saul to the house of David. Abner, are you saying that you have known that David was God's rightful king the entire time? It's exactly what he was saying. From the very beginning of this, you see this whole insurrection, this thing of making his own king, this wasn't a matter of misinformation. It's not like Abner just thought he was doing the right thing and he turned out he was wrong when it was all said and done. I didn't know this was God's will. I had no idea. No, he is admitting here, I've known the entire time that David is God's rightful king, God's anointed king, and I have warred against it with my eyes wide open. No excuse for that. No excuse whatsoever. Now, Abner is going to try to align himself with David. I'm going to spare you the reading on this, but I encourage you to go home and read it for yourself. I do not detect that he is sincere in any of this. He doesn't go to David and say, David, I've sinned against you. You're the rightful king. 
I'm throwing myself at your mercy, whatever you do with me, that's right. He doesn't do that. No, he's trying to manipulate. Once again, that's what Abner does. He manipulates. He goes to David and he says, now David, I've got influence over here in Israel. You know, I'm, I'm pretty much running the show over there, and you want to be king. Make a league with me. Make a treaty with me. Right? Be at peace with me, and I'll get you what you want. I'll use my power, and I'll use my influence, and I'll get everybody over on Israel to bow the knee to you. And David does something that's very out of character for him. He agrees to this. And I suppose he's acting in a, a politically savvy manner. He thinks, well, listen, we need to end this civil war. Let's get this over with. Yeah, he's got some influence over there. I'll make a treaty with Abner. I'll use his influence to, to be king, and that's the way we'll work it out. And here's what he was going to have to do. He was going to have to take everything Abner did and just sweep it under the carpet. I guess I'll just forget about the insurrection, and I'll forget about the killing of Asahel. I'll just sweep all that under the, under the rug for the sake of having the cooperation of this man, Abner. A note on this, if I never say it again in this message. If you want to know what God is not like, what he's not like, he is not like what David is doing here. He needs absolutely no cooperation from men to be king. He is king. And one day, either in this life or later on, once the Lord wraps all this up, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He doesn't need any man's cooperation to be king. He is king. Christ sits on the throne whether a man sees it or not. He's Lord over all of us whether we see it or not. And here's the other thing he will not do. He's not going to sweep any sin under the carpet. Not a one. This is the truth about all sin. Collectively, all sin. Every sin either has already been punished in the person of Jesus Christ, or it will be punished in the person of the man who committed that sin eternally. But every sin will be accounted for at the end of the day. He's not going to let one sin go unpunished that he may maintain his title as a just God and a Savior. If you want to know what God is not like, he is not like what David is doing here. Now, David may be willing to overlook Abner's indiscretions, but there's a person who will not. It's Joab, Asahel's brother. The blood of Asahel cries to Joab, and he can't let it go. Look over here, chapter 3, verse 22. And behold, the servants of David, chapter 3, 22. And Joab came from pursuing a troop and brought in a great spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away and he was gone in peace. When Joab and all the hosts that was with him were come, they told Joab, saying, Abner the son of Ner came to the king and he has sent him away and he is gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, What hast thou done? Behold, Abner came unto thee. Why is it that thou hast sent him away, and he is quite gone? Thou knowest, Abner, the son of Ner, that he came to deceive thee, and to know thy going out and thy coming in, and to know all that thou doest. Now, as a man, Joab is wrong here. You don't talk to your king like this. You certainly don't talk to God's anointed king like this. But Joab is probably acting in David's best interest. And Joab is probably right. Abner probably was a snake in the grass. And Abner probably was just trying to gain some influence in David just to usurp his throne later on. 
The way Joab's talking to his king is wrong, but his logic is right. He's probably dead right on this. But like I said, David may be willing to overlook Abner, but Joab won't. Look at verse 26. And when Joab was come out from David, he sent messengers after Abner, which brought him again from the well of Syrah. But David knew it not. And when Abner was returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him quietly and smote him there under the fifth rib, and he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Now, once again, as a man, Joab is wrong. The king did not consent to this. He did this without David's approval and without David knowing. And if you go on reading, what you find is that David mourns greatly for Abner. And David actually curses Joab and his house over this whole thing. But this is very interesting. This act, this one singular act of Abner being put down for good forever. You know what this leads to? The complete reconciliation of the kingdom of David. Israel comes back and says, you're the king. You're our king. We've always known that. The entire kingdom is reconciled under David because Abner is finally put down for good. Now, that is a very long story. What's the point? Where's the gospel in all this? What is the teaching of all this? Here's a few things for you. What is the natural man like? Me, you, every man as we're born into this world. We're all the same, absolutely all the same. What is the natural man like? We're all just like Abner, just like Abner. There are three things that I hope you noticed about Abner along the way. Number one, he knew that David was the rightful king from the very beginning. This wasn't a matter of a misunderstanding. He had the appropriate information. He simply warred against what he saw. Secondly, his theme He does not want David to be king. Why? Because he doesn't want to lose control, or at least perceived control. And three, what does he do because of this? He makes himself a king. He installs a puppet king, one he can manipulate, one who's terrified of him, a king that will only do exactly what he tells him to do. That's the natural man. We're just like Abner, as we're born into this world. The natural man knows something about God. He has some natural understanding of God. This is what Paul says, Romans 1.20. I'll read it to you for the sake of time. Paul says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, not hidden, clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. What's Paul saying there? Every man he's born in this world knows that God is. He's born with that knowledge. How? The very creation declares that God is. And we probably don't spend enough time looking at the creation. You go out at night and you look at those stars and you consider the fact that you can set your clock by when that sun's going to come up and when it's going to go down. Everything moving with pristine precision. I can't make that. Somebody who is very very wise made all that. Someone who is very, very powerful made all that. Eternally powerful, the scripture adds. No, he made all that, and I did not make all that, and I cannot make all that. I don't have that wisdom, and I don't have that power. The creation declares, everybody knows this from birth, there is a God. 
and he is the one who creates. In this hierarchy, he is wiser than me, he is more powerful than me. There is a natural pecking order that is established that a man can see simply by the creation alone. He is God, and I am not. You know what the man does when he sees that? He says, no, 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 that can't be. That absolutely can't be. You go on reading what Paul said in verse 21. He said, because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. The man sees this. There is a natural hierarchy. God is, he is here, and I am underneath him. He's my king. And what is the reaction to that? He's darkened. He turns his face from that. He does not like what he sees. And the question is this, does the man darken his heart? Or does the Lord darken a man's heart? You know what the answer is? Yes. Both. Remember when the Lord was dealing with Pharaoh through Moses in the Exodus? He would come to him. Moses, the Lord said, let my people go. And Pharaoh would say, no, I'm not letting them go. And interchangeably in those conversations, it will say, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And next chapter over, it will say, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Which one was it? Yes. Pharaoh saw the God of Israel's God. And in this great hierarchy, he's above me. He's my king too. I don't like that. I hardened my heart. I've darkened my heart against that. No, absolutely not. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. How does he do that? We talked about it in Sunday school. If the Lord wants to harden a man's heart, there's only one thing he has to do. Nothing. Just leave a man alone. If the Lord wants to damn a man, this is all he has to do. Nothing. Just leave a man alone to do what he naturally wants to do. To reject what is clearly seen. The hierarchy is clearly seen. Men just darken their hearts. I don't like the hierarchy. And that rejection, that rejection that is without excuse, not a matter of misunderstanding. Was it a matter of misunderstanding with Abner? Absolutely not. Is it a matter of misunderstanding with the natural man? Nope. Paul tells us the creation declares there's a hierarchy, and men reject the hierarchy. But that rejection gets more fierce. It gets more bold when the truth is seen, the full truth from the Scriptures. God's inspired word. Not that he is just more powerful than I am. It's not just that. It's that he is a sovereign God. It's not that he's just wiser than I am. It's that he's an omniscient God. That means in Jesus Christ, all wisdom is housed. There is nothing to be known that he does not know because he is the source of all wisdom. Power, he is the source of all power as the sovereign and omnipotent God. All power is housed in him. And the man says this, I will not have that man to rule over me. Why? Why? Why is the natural order rejected? Because of the implication. The implication is this. I don't have any power. That's what Abner was mad about, wasn't it? David becomes king. I don't have any more power. I'm at David's mercy. Well, if God really is sovereign, and Christ really is sovereign, which they are, that means I don't have any power in this thing of salvation. I don't have any choice. I can't manipulate this king. I can't force this king to bend to my will. I'm in this king's hands, and I've sinned against the king. I'm a sinner in the hands of a sovereign and a holy God, and that means he can do with me as he sees fit, and there's absolutely nothing I can do about that. The man says, no, 
Absolutely not. I see it clearly, but I reject what I see. So what did Abner do? He installed a puppet king. What does a man do? He rejects what he sees naturally. So what does he do? He makes himself a king. He makes himself a god. An Ishbosheth. What are the attributes of Ishbosheth? He's a winkling. He's terrified of Abner. He won't do anything unless Abner gives him the go-ahead. Every idol that has ever been made. All the different names they've carried over the years, over the centuries, over the decades. They all have this in common. They can help. And they want to. You have to do your part. Whatever that part is. He's a weakling. He'll do whatever you want him to. You just, you just got to do the thing he needs you to do. He makes that God because he's comfortable with that God. Because he can manipulate that God. He makes himself an Ishbosheth. He makes himself a king. Now, if a man's going to make himself a god, what does he have to do next? <clears throat> He's got to make himself a religion. That's what this scene at Gibeon is all about. Let me get to my notes here. So what happened at Gibeon? Abner comes with his forces. Joab comes with his forces. And Abner says this, Joab, bring your best. And I'm going to bring my best. Now, in man's religion, what is man's religion? Salvation by works. In man's religion, what is a man called on to do? Bring his best. Bring your best works. Bring your best thoughts. Bring the goodness of your will. Whatever you think, God will accept. Bring your best. This is what we're going to do. We're all going to have an offering here. We're going to bring our best before God. And what they have to do in man's religion is change the standard. They can't use God's standard for acceptance. What is God's standard for acceptance? Perfect righteousness, perfect sinlessness, perfect holiness. That is the only thing God will accept. For me to be accepted by God, for you to be accepted by God, I must be sinless as Jesus Christ is sinless. I must be holy as Jesus Christ is holy. And I must be righteous as Jesus Christ is righteous. That's the only thing God will accept. Got to be that good. That good. Natural man says, we can't use that standard. Because the natural man, while he has no natural understanding of our total depravity, that we can't take the first step toward God, we're dead in trespasses and sins. Natural man knows nothing of that. But all natural men collectively agree to this. Nobody's perfect. We all have a conscience. The conscience burns inside of us when we sin, when we do wrong. All men would agree nobody's perfect. So we can't use God's standard. It's too high. It's too holy. None of us could reach that. So we've got to create a new standard. So what's the new standard? I suppose whichever one of us can make the best vein showing in the flesh of how much power we have over sin and how we're living this righteous life where we get better in holiness and better in holiness and better in holiness. Whichever one of us can at least outwardly look the best, I suppose he then becomes the standard. And if a man can be the standard, that means that I can be the standard. And that means you can be the standard. You know what that means? That means we're in a competition. Just like out there at Gibeon. 12 on 12, we're going to find out who's better. You bring your best, I'll bring my best, and we'll find out who's more pleasing to God. We'll find out at the end of the day who's going to get the bigger crown in glory, who's going to get the bigger mansion in heaven, who's going to be higher in the hierarchy along the way, who's going to be whose servant. You bring your best, I'll bring my best, and we'll have a little competition. We're going to find out who's best. 
And here's what this religion does not produce. It produces absolutely no salvation whatsoever. Salvation by works never saved one man. We talked about that in Sunday school. By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. Never saved one person. It produces absolutely no worship of God. Because the God that's being worshipped does not exist. He's a sniveling weakling. But here's another thing it doesn't produce. It produces absolutely no brotherly love. No care or concern for your brother. No love for him. No covering his sins. Just like we saw that Shem and Japheth this morning. What did they do? They saw Noah's sin and they covered it. That's love. That's what love does. It covers a transgression. There's none of that. There's just hatred and maliciousness to the people around you. Why? Because we're in a competition. We're trying to see who's better. So we just spend all the time hoping that our brother falls and he's exposed so I look better. And we just hack each other to bits. What a malicious religion. How terrible. And I think this is very interesting. The purpose of Gibeon was this. You send your best, I send my best. We're going to find out who's better. At the end of the day, what did they find? They found that amongst them there was absolutely no difference. They were all the same, all evenly matched. And the Lord's going to reveal this to every man one day. Either if he saves him in this life, we'll know it in this life, or not. When he wraps this whole thing up, everybody's going to know this. Amongst men, there's just no difference. This is what Paul said about men. Said, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Does that leave any room for exception? Gibeon, we're going to find out who's better. What'd they find? We're all the same. No difference. There's just no difference between men. We're all born dead in trespasses and sins. All born hating God. All born rebels. All born without a righteousness and unable to achieve one. Every man by nature is the same. The only difference is the difference that Christ makes. That's it. And I find this very interesting. What happened to everybody who entered the competition at Gibeon? What is the end state of that? They died. Every one of them died. And if we come this way, if we come to God, on the basis of our best, bringing our best, our best works, our best thoughts. This is our end state. This is the warning of this book. You will die. You will die at the hand of God. I don't know you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. That's what you're going to hear. Now, that's man and that's man's lie. What's the truth? Now, we said the truth's not subjective. Truth is one, right? It's God's truth. That's it. What's the truth? The truth is Asahel. He's the truth. Now, three things I hope you saw about Asahel. This was a man of single-minded purpose. And it's a purpose that he would not be dissuaded from. He took the battlefield and he spied out the problem. He looked, Abner, he's the problem. And in single-minded purpose, he went headlong after the problem and he wouldn't be dissuaded. Abner said, Turn to the left hand. Turn to the right. Stop following after me. Asahel said, no, you're the problem. You have to go down. And I want you to consider this. I think this is glorious. This is beautiful. The only reason that Abner is put down for good and the entire kingdom is reconciled under David 
is because Asahel died. David was going to let Abner go. Joab probably wouldn't have cared if he wouldn't have killed his little brother. But because the blood of Asahel cried unto Joab, Abner is put down forever, and the entire kingdom is reconciled unto David. Folks, who are we talking about here? Our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only thing worth talking about. Asahel's name means God made or God appointed. God appointed His Son to be the Savior of His people. He appointed Him to a body. He said, you're going to be made flesh, be made man. Made of a woman, made under the law. God appointed His Son, God Himself, to a body. And He abode here for 33 years. Just as Asahel was a man of single-minded purpose, our Lord Jesus Christ was a man of single-minded purpose. What was that purpose? When he was 12 years old, his family went down to Jerusalem for the Passover. And they were coming back from it, and they thought that he was with them, but he wasn't. So they had to go back. You know where they found him? They found him in the temple. 12 years old, God was. And he was talking to the teachers there, and they were astonished by what he knew and the questions he was asking. They were astonished because they didn't know who it was. That was God sitting in front of him. And his mother came, and he said, she said to him, essentially, why would you do this to us? Why would you run away? And he said this to her. He said this, he said, how is it that ye sought me? This was no mere 12-year-old boy. This was God himself looking at Mary saying, Mary, you don't seek me. I seek you. That's the only reason you come looking for me, because I sought you first. That's it. But this was his purpose. He said, Mary, wished ye not that I must be about my father's business for 33 years He was a man of single-minded purpose to do this and this only, his father's business. To do his father's will. And we don't have to wonder about what his father's will was. He tells us in John 6, 39. He says, and this is the father's will which has sent me. That of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing but should raise it up again at the last day. You know what he's talking about there? He's just giving an account of what happened in the covenant of grace, that covenant that was made long, long, long before not one pillar of this earth was ever made. He said, my father gave me a task. Isaiah 6, it talks about it. The father, the son, and the Holy Spirit sitting around saying, who will go for us? Who will be champion? And the son said, here I, send me. I'll be champion for us. And the father said, this is the task. We, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have a people. We love a people. And here's what your task is. I'm going to put them in the only place of safety. I have to have a place to put them that they can endure the eternities, that can endure the ages. I'm giving them to you. And the Son said, oh yes, here am I. Send me. And the Father said, everything I require of them. Everything. You know my standard for acceptance. It's perfection. Blameless perfection. It's the only thing I will accept. Everything I require of them, I'm going to hold you accountable for. This is going to involve blood. It's going to involve death. It's going to involve being being made sin. And the son said, here I, send me. And he came to this world, just as Asahel did, in single-minded purpose, and he spied out Abner. The problem, he came to this world and he found the problem 
What is the problem? What is the problem? God's people, what separated them from their God? Our sin. That's the Abner. Abner was an old, grizzled warrior. He's really confident. And you know, if you're a believer, how old and grizzled and malicious that warrior is, how great our sin is in us. Your sins have separated you from your God, caused him to hide his face from you that he will not hear. What was the Abner? What was the problem? Our sin. Asahel took off after Abner. Christ pursued after. I got to put the problem away. You think of the discouragement along the way. Satan tempted him for 40 days and 40 nights, just trying to find something to work with in Christ. Couldn't find anything. Left him after 40 days and 40 nights. Found nothing to work with. You think if he's going to sift us, how much he would find to work with all kinds of things. Couldn't find nothing in him because he was a spotless lamb. And a little while later, when the Lord told his disciples, he said, I'm going to be killed and I'll be raised again after the third day. Satan took hold of Peter. And through Peter, he said this. He said, no, that can't be, Lord. That's be it far from thee. He tried flattery. Didn't work on him. Discouragement on every side. It would not work. But I think the greatest discouragement came at Gethsemane's garden. You remember when our Lord, he prayed, and those great drops of blood came from his forehead in the sweat. What was it he saw? What was it that had him so discouraged and so distraught? He said, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. He saw what was in the cup. What was in the cup? It was the sins of his people. This thought of standing being made the sins of his people, standing in those sins and in that shame before his father, that thought made him sweat those great drops of blood. This is what he said. Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. If there be any other way that our people can be saved, remove this cup from me. And I don't want to take away from the physical pain of our Lord's death. You think about a spear being thrust through you, the blunted edge, how much trauma that would cause. That's nothing compared to what our Lord endured on the cross. But at the same time, I never want to pity him. This is the Lord of glory. This is the great conqueror, the great king, the great champion. I never want to pity him. But this was the great despair. This was the great discouragement being made the sins of his people. But he said this, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He wouldn't be dissuaded. Not one way. And he knew to his God there was absolutely no other way. You know what he did? Just as Asahel ran headlong into Abner's spear, and it went through him all the way out the other side, he took the sins of his elect. He bore them in his body. He went to the cross. He died under the wrath of God for those sins. And just as that spear passed through Asahel and came out the other side, the sins of the elect went into Christ. And now, through his death, they're gone. They're put away. Never to be seen again. And don't take my word for that. Absolutely not. Oh, forgive me. You're going to have to because I left the page of my notes out. <laughs> but here's the point of all this. I never want to preach a message. And I really don't want everyone to hear a message if I don't know this. Right? The teaching of this book is this, that everybody Christ died for, 
his elect people, they are eternally secure. That sin is gone as far as the east is from the west. It's gone. We're whole in Christ. We lack absolutely nothing. Now, the only question that lingers there is this. Who are those people? Can we spot those people even right now? And you know what? We can. When Asahel fell down and died, what happened? You remember what the scripture said? Everybody who came to the place where Asahel died stood still. Now, when I'm brought to this place, when the gospel is preached to me, I know this. The only way I'll be received of God, the only way I can be saved, is just this one way. Is if Jesus Christ bore my sins in his body, and he put them away, and he is right now, presently, my righteousness before the Father. That's the only way I can be saved. I stand still right there. I've got nowhere else to go. Now, the gods of this world, those little G gods, they're not going to do me any good. I need a sovereign. It's going to take a sovereign to save me. And the great competition of man's religion, that's not going to do me any good either. Absolutely no good. I'm going to have to be saved by grace. That's it. God is going to have to find a reason outside of me and do everything that is necessary to save me. I stand still right here. Sink or swim, win or lose, there is only one way I will be saved. And that's if Christ died for me. That's it. Am I elect? Am I not? Not even a question for me. This is it. This is what I know. The only way I'll be saved is if Christ died for me. And that's all I need and that's all I want. I stand still right there. But I tell you what, folks, that's faith. That is the faith. And that is the very evidence that Christ died for you. And you are eternally secure in him. I love Asa Hill, but I love the greater Asa Hill so much more. It's been a blessing being with you all this morning. I love you there. Couldn't help but think of Moses speaking to the people there at the Red Sea. Fear ye not. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will show to you this day. Oh, I thank you for that message. Thank you for it. Be sure and greet Aaron on the on the way out. Isaac, what's our song? Four forty nine. Let's stand together and Isaac will lead us in a closing hymn. Four forty nine.